This is Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for joining us for our second episode of our second season. I'm Shanna Farrell, an interviewer with the Center, and I'll be sitting down today with our director, Martin Meeker, to talk about my forthcoming book, Bay Area Cocktails, A History of Culture, Community, and Craft, which will be out in September 2017. Today I'm sitting down with my colleague Shanna Farrell. Shanna Farrell is a historian interviewer here at the Oral History Center. And today we're going to be talking about her forthcoming book, Bay Area Cocktails, A History of Culture, Community, and Craft. This book's going to be published in uh, this September, um, September 2017, and it's coming out on History Arcadia Press. And I will encourage everyone to get a copy and, and read more about the history of uh, craft cocktail culture in the Bay Area. Uh, so we're just going to start today by giving a, a brief overview of, of the book. But before we get there, I want to find out from you how it is that you became interested in the history of cocktails. I had been working in the service industry since I was like 21 as a server, kind of making my way from server to cocktail waitress, then to bartender when I was in grad school. And I was working at a bar in Brooklyn, and I remember this was around when the cocktail renaissance was really taking off, like 2008-ish. And the bar I was working at, the bar manager was actually had been trained by Dale DeGroff at the Rainbow Room, and Dale DeGroff is this famed New York bartender who was largely responsible for bringing fresh juice into cocktails in New York City. I was really interested in the bottles on the back bar, and I was like, the, the distillers have stories here. And so I was going to grad school, and I was really interested in environmental issues, and I was looking at bigger issues in the food system and water. I was thinking about water and distillation. So kind of marrying that with the first time that I actually ever made a cocktail, which was a Pisco Sour. And I had watched a, I had watched a video of our bar manager on this like local Brooklyn TV station. And so I knew how to make it that way. But I was like, do we were juicing by hand and it was a, a Pisco Sour. So it's got egg white. And I remember like was expressly told to just shake the shit out of it. So you get a frothy egg white. Um, and I did it, and I had this like beautifully frothed egg white, and I'm so satisfied by that that it was kind of a really the instant gratification really got me interested. And then around that time, I became more interested in cocktails, and this is when there were bars in the east cocktail bars in the East Village opening um, in Manhattan, and so I started going there and kind of realizing that there's there's something to this. This is really interesting. And when I moved um, out here for the job at UC Berkeley in the Oral History Center, a few months into the job here, I kind of I actually approached you and I said, hey, I've got this idea, and you're really supportive of it. So I put together an advisory team, and Dale DeGroff was on the advisory team, uh, cocktail historian Dave Wondrich, who actually used the Bancroft Library when he wrote his cocktail history book, and started talking to them about some issues in the West Coast and what kind of made that different from New York or made that also historically significant and realized that there was just so much information here that really hadn't been recorded. So um, I did a crowdfunding campaign, which was marginally successful, <laughs> and then started doing some interviews. So I, I, uh, you mentioned a, uh, a phrase, and I'd like to follow up on that and, and, and give you an opportunity to unpack it a bit. And I also understand this this phrase is the heart of your book, and that is cocktail renaissance. Mm -hmm. What was or is the cocktail renaissance? That is a period of time where cocktails became popular again. So cocktails are a uniquely American thing. They were invented in America. The first definition of a cocktail is actually published in the 1800s in a newspaper in Westchester, New York. And so America is credited with inventing the cocktail. 
they were very popular in bars where bars were kind of the social centers of, of cities and towns before prohibition and then prohibition happened and alcohol making producing selling was all illegal so people were started to bootleg hence the taste of alcohol was pretty inferior so that's when juices and sweeteners and, and different additives started to be used in cocktails mm. so there's really these two schools of pre-prohibition and prohibition era cocktails and after prohibition we enter a period called the culinary dark ages where it's like the second industrial revolution so we're canning food we're processing food where pre- hungry man dinners exactly yeah <laughs> microwave dinner yeah, yeah. microwaveable dinners um and so cocktails were just sugary and gross and kind of bastardized versions of what they originally were and there was a group of bartenders that individually started going to flea markets like right here in the east bay uh, the ashby flea market and finding these books with bartenders from europe who there was no prohibition there so they got to keep making these pre-prohibition era cocktails and really progressing those they started to get really interested in the history and and bringing that back to america and um so classic cocktails and classic kind of encompasses both pre-prohibition and prohibition era cocktails start making their way back on menus and there was um, two bartenders here in the bay area paul harrington and marco dionysus who started putting uh, classic cocktails on menus but then also started referencing historic cocktail books um, and they start to get really popular Marco opened the bar at Absinthe in 1998, and I interviewed him, and in one of his stories, he was talking about how he was working a shift, and and that had a really great kitchen and a really great wine program, but he looked up, and he saw every single person at the bar drinking a cocktail, and he was like, this is this is it. So it's, it's really when people start to get more interested in cocktails again. I remember going to uh, the bar at Absinthe just about that time. And um, I've got to say that was probably the first place that I had what would now be called a craft cocktail in a bar setting. And I remember that the name of the cocktail was the Lopra. And I can't exactly remember what was in it, but uh, it, was, um, it was very good and, and good enough that you wanted to sip instead of chug. Um, tell me about the, the genesis of the book. I know that you did some interviews here at the Oral History mm-hmm. Center. Uh, but then, then the book starts a bit after those interviews or in conjunction with it and becomes something larger and a bit different than, than the project originally started out as. Yeah, so here with the Oral History Center, I interviewed Jörg Grupp, who founded St. George Spirits, Lance Winters, who's now one of the co-owners, and uh, Jörg's protege, basically, um, master distiller there. And I interviewed Julio Bermejo, who owns Tommy's Mexican Restaurant. Well, his family owns it. Um, he changed the way that America drinks and understands tequila. I interviewed Thad Vogler, who owns Bar Agricole and True Normand. Um, that may be that may have been it, but I started writing some articles because it was an effort to kind of get the project out there when I was crowdfunding for it. So I wrote for a national online magazine called Punch. The article did really well. It led to other writing opportunities and I could be better at Twitter, but I'll put, I'll tweet the articles that I I write and a publisher or an acquisitions editor found some of my work and approached me and asked me if I wanted to put together a book proposal. So I did and 
I, they, they liked it. And so um, I negotiated the contract and I started doing more interviews, which is great because the oral history is a soft money organization. So we, off, we operate like a nonprofit and often have to find our own funding. And because alcohol has been villainized for so long, uh, it's really hard to find funding for a project. Like, I'm interviewing bartenders and people think that's kind of like this fun, light project. There's a lot there, but there's a different perception of, of it. So it was hard to find funding. This was a really great way to start doing interviews on my own that didn't require funding in the writing of the book. And then I can donate them. Um, and it was also allowed me to focus on the Bay Area. So I was able to interview a whole new cohort of narrators that may be a little bit too young to do some life history hmm. review right now, uh, but we're, we're here when it all happened. So, and it was, it just allowed me to include some multivocal perspectives and kind of write the history that hasn't really been recorded. Although I know the book doesn't come out until September, uh, I understand it's basically done. Mm-hmm. You've, the draft is, is in. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, can you maybe walk us through what the narrative of the book is? What are the different chapters, and what are the what are you trying to argue in this in this book? Yeah, so there there are some things that really set San Francisco apart from New York, and usually there's three cities that are largely cited for starting the cocktail renaissance, which are London, New York, and San Francisco. San Francisco is often an afterthought. It does not usually receive as much uh, legitimacy or credit that that New York does. So I was really trying to make the case that this stuff has been happening here perhaps longer than it has been in New York and coming at it from different angles. You know, I had the opportunity to read a few passages from the book, including uh, the chapter one about Jorg Rupp, who was the the founder of uh, St. George uh, in 1980 or 81. Um, 82. 82. (laughs) (laughs) Almost there. I know that he started distilling before that, but we'll let the readers uh, uh, get into the, the deeper history of it. Uh, you know, one thing I was surprised to learn was that St. George was the first distiller to open in California in generations. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. What you're talking about here tells me that this book is about much more than what people might expect, bartenders and spirits. It's bringing in a whole wide variety of other issues as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, the thing that I love about this project and and this kind of area of inquiry is that it's never about the cocktail itself. It's never about what's in the glass. It's the intersection of so many things. So that's history, that's legalities, that's agriculture, community, technique, race, gender, class, etiquette, bars being a public space and there's also issues of addiction and and health and Mm. taking care of yourself that way but it's also business history so there's so much here and it is a really serious topic I think I get laughed at sometimes when I tell people what I'm interested in but there's there's a lot here. Cocktail culture has really been emblematic of how American culture has been shaped so I was trying to tell that story as well. Well why don't we talk for a minute about gender and race I mean uh, you know bartenders are mostly dudes how did this impact um, the development of this culture and, and what role do women have, if any, in this in this world? So that's an interesting sort of looking at that historically about why there aren't more women involved is because after World War II, when men, well, during World War II, when men were overseas fighting, a lot of women had to take over their jobs. And we know that from other areas too, but that included bartending. 
And bartending was seen as this really coveted job when people came back because it was easy and it was fun and you made a lot of money and you were social and you didn't have to go back to this grind. But women wanted these jobs too. And so there was some lobbying that said that in California that said if your husband, if your father, if your brother did not own the bar, you were not allowed to work there. And in San Francisco, actually, one of our, our um, interviewer, Emeritus, um, remembers in, California, or in San Francisco this ordinance that was passed hmm. that women couldn't work past 9 p.m. So bars are open much later than that. But, yeah, so I think that there was this kind of exclusionary culture after that that happened. Um, it is a little bit different in California. I think people are a little bit more open to having women behind the bar. Uh, where When I was in New York, it wasn't. It's different now. It's changed a lot in the past five years. We're having more of these conversations about gender. But for a really long time, women just weren't welcome. Um, but here, I mean, it, it is a little bit regrettable to me that there aren't any... There There are some women included in the book, not as many as I'd hoped, because I am kind of taking a little bit longer view than the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, much has changed in the past 10 years, but... Uh, now there are women who open bars and run bars and bar back, and there's they're kind of unpa- they're undoing these uh, perceptions that women aren't strong enough to carry a keg or can't work late. But there, I mean, there's a, there's there's a lot there that's so it's unfortunate. But I think in in the Bay Area in particular, people are a little bit more open to having women involved, and so there is the the Bay Area has been more welcoming to women, I think, than a lot of other places around the country. Another of the really interesting passages that I had the opportunity to read was A Bar in Every Corner, the Cocktail Boom. And in this chapter, you detail the story of Bourbon and Branch, which uh, you describe as a really transformative bar in the cocktail culture of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, You you describe it as a speakeasy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that, because when I think of a speakeasy, I think of something during Prohibition and the Great Depression, when spirits were illegal, mm-hmm. and you know you would have these sort of basement rooms where you'd knock on a door and give a password, go in, and you know there was always the threat of it being raided by the cops or you know uh, whatever regulatory agency would come around. Um, do people talk about speakeasies today, and what does that mean? Yeah, so part of the whole cocktail renaissance was the speakeasy culture. So it was sort of borrowing from the past because there was this division between pre-prohibition and prohibition-era cocktails. The speakeasy thing was everywhere. One of the bars in the East Village that kind of put the whole cocktail thing on the map, you have to... uh, I had my 25th birthday party there, actually. You walk into this hot dog shack... And then you walk up to a phone booth, you pick up the phone booth, and you tell them you're there, and you walk through the phone booth into a bar with no windows and taxidermy meat animals. It's PDT in New York. So it's like this. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, I think that's part of it. It's like this escapism that's super fun. There's taking back history. There is this whole sort of, like, mystery, danger. I mean, that's sort of supposed to loom large. Um, and it was hi- it is hyper masculine. It's kind of the rise of the twisted mustaches and the suspenders, and that was happening a lot in New York. 
And there is this air of exclusivity as well, because that's when we talk about like class, there is like a certain type of person can afford a $12 cocktail in 2008. In San Francisco, that wasn't happening as much. It really was attached to restaurants. So it was a little bit, I mean, there's class there because if you can afford to go to a restaurant instead of a bar, that's also a certain type of appeals to a certain socioeconomic status. Um, but there wasn't the exclusivity. And there were bars leading up to Bourbon and Branch absinthe in 1998 which by the way opens before milk and honey which is another was a legitimate speakeasy in the in um the lower east side of new york that sasha petrosky opened didn't have a liquor license mm. you needed a password it could get raided and that oh. is supposed that bar is cited as ground zero for the cocktail revival mm. this is part one of my arguments is that actually it wasn't because enrico's and north beach is open before that where paul harrington worked and then later marco dionysus marco opens absinthe in 98 there's all these other bars that are opening in san francisco that really don't get the same credit Bourbon and Branch is opened in 2006, and it was in a building that was actually a speakeasy during Prohibition. So under the bar, there are catacombs, and that's where either booze was stored or it was kind of moved around from place to place. And Bourbon and Branch did have this air of exclusivity because you had to have a reservation. So they were trying to incorporate these principles, these elements, into the bar. I want you to tell me a little bit about the, the methodology for, for writing this. I, I know that, um, well, how many interviews did you do and, and what role do those interviews play in the narrative? The interviews are, are the heart of the narrative. It's a multivocal narrative because I'm really, um, I follow the lead of the material. I interviewed maybe 20, 25 people started with the, the interviews I did here in the office, and then I start with people that I know, people who have been supportive to me in the project in other ways. The owners of Prizefighter, John Santer, and uh, Dylan O'Brien, they've been really supportive, so I kind of started with John. John's also one of my photographers. He took the portraits. But yeah, so I was interviewing all these people, and I, I went through the transcripts and started pulling out themes that I started seeing, or I started picking up on material. And, and the first few interviews I was doing, people started mentioning this guy, Paul Harrington, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I've heard of him, he's come up in other interviews, but it became so poignant at one point. There was a guy who was interviewing in his bar, and he pulls off Paul's book from the back shelf, and he was like... This book is why I like cocktails. Mm. I was super into the movie Swingers. I thought it was a cool thing. I picked up this book, and this prose was just amazing. And he, he reads from the book. Or during, they're talking about how important Paul is. They, they brought the book to the interview, and they put it on the table so they can actually reference it. So I was like, I've got to talk to this Paul Harrington guy. Found him on Facebook, gave him my, my email, and he wrote me back. And we did a really lovely couple-hour interview, and he was just so gracious with his time. So he left the Bay Area in 1998. So his this everything happened when he was in his 20s. He said, when I'm 30, I want to leave the bar industry and he moved he's from C, uh, he's from Washington state and he moved back there to be an architect. Mm. So I have one last question. Sure. So a, a very good friend of mine <laughs> uh, perhaps uh, evenings that he would have uh, maybe a, a, an extra too many drinks. The next morning we would be at brunch together and he would joke not that he drank too much but but that there was a batch of bad ice going around. <laughs> 
That's amazing. I love that. But in one of the chapters, you talk about great ice. Yeah. <laughs> what is great ice? With good ice, it's like cold draft machines. So you're getting bigger ice that's more uniform, hmm. and it's also more solid. There's no hole in the middle. It's also why now in cocktail bars you see these, they call them king cubes. Um, they're like inch by inch. Um, they, di- they dilute slower. Um, so it's just easier to control the dilution. So like if I drink pretty slowly and so if I, I and I like I like my stirred cocktails on the rocks, it's not gonna over dilute and I'm not gonna have a watery cocktail. Well, why don't we leave it there? Thank right. you very much, Thank Anna you. Farrell, for uh, telling me about your forthcoming book, Barrier Cocktails, a history of culture, community, and craft. It's coming out uh, this September and uh, we look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for listening and join us in late fall 2017 for our next full season.